Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton, here today with Daniel Maloney. Dan is the Senior Vice President and Chief Security Officer at Verizon, where he oversees 13 departments covering full-spectrum security across the global corporate footprint. Dan has been with Verizon and its legacy companies since 1997, and he oversees and coordinates global security efforts throughout Verizon and all its business units, including enterprise-wide security strategy and programs, physical security, cybersecurity, legal compliance, and law enforcement matters. Dan, welcome to the OnTick Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here with you. Dan, how did you get into the security business? That's a great question. Uh, I will tell you that um, I had no intentions, and that's probably not a um, a unique uh, answer in, 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 uh, for that sort of question. I had no intention of getting in specifically involved in the security career field, although I was actually recruited by my predecessor, who was Mike Mason. I think you might have known him. Oh, sure. Yeah. So Mike was the uh, uh, chief security officer here at Verizon. And I was in the, just refer to it as sort of the business side of Verizon. And at the time I was doing international deployments, technology deployments uh, that you know, sort of always overlapped into the security arena. I did have a cyber background, so I was quite familiar with technology, technology stacks, and then how that sort of interplayed in international, international business. And then... Um, one of his deputies at the time had reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in coming to chat with them. I really had no idea what they wanted to talk to me about, honestly. And uh, I came up here and met with Henry Shimbob, who's now the uh, CSO over at uh, JP Morgan. And um, they described this job to me. And I, um, Henry was, he's, if you know Henry, he's quite strategic and uh, quite good at what he does. And then he said, hey, just a minute, I'll be right back. And and then they uh, walked me in to meet with Mike Mason. And if you spend five minutes with Mike Mason, uh, you know you just want to work wherever he's working. He's just that compelling of a, of a leader and a, a motivator and a figure. And, you know, he's also a wonderful friend. So they um, talked to me about a need that they had in the security arena that was really sort of in the sweet spot of what I was doing, which was international work. And um, they needed help to do it. And they asked me if the, if I thought I could help develop an international security program. And I'll talk more about that probably as we get into details here. And um, it really just piqued my interest. And I remember driving home and I had the complete opposite conversation with my wife that I did on the way up here. And that conversation was, there's no way I'm going to work for a security organization. And on the way home, it was, oh my gosh, I think this is like, you know, what I've been really you know, being prepared for, unbeknownst to me at the time, for many years, and I'm very interested. So in just a span of a few hours, I went from no way I'm doing it to, wow, I think I'm really going to change careers. And let me just say that what I was doing was, before I came into security, was 
it was one of those jobs where I felt like, wow, I cannot get any better than this. So, uh, you know, it was really a very thoughtful uh, consideration to leave the business and move into security. So that's sort of the mezzanine level uh, overview of how I started in, in the security industry. Yeah, that's simply uh, amazing. Dan, we have the opportunity here with our podcast to talk to a lot of uh, chief security officers with the Fortune 1000s. And when I look at your position, can you explain your role as to the size of your operation and what you're responsible for? Sure. You know, I've been here, I've only been here uh, in security for uh, since 2009. So I'm still like figuring out what it all it, it encompasses. And I find that to be be, uh, <laughs> be the same answer from many of my colleagues. But, uh, you know, there's sort of the basics, right? The guards, guns, and gates part of security, which is the physical or the kinetic side, which is just um, protecting the inside and the perimeter of facilities around the world. And that's sort of like, the table stakes for most CSOs, of course. Additionally, unique to Verizon, and again, I'll, I'll, um, I know we'll, you know, we may come back and sort of undo some of what I'm saying here in case I over, over uh, represent some of the details. But one of the things that I had really been intentional about doing was. Uh, and, and these are things that are said a lot in the security industry, and sometimes they're, I think, they're practiced, other times not so much. But what I wanted to make sure I was doing was a, building a 360 organization. And what I mean by that is all of the unique functions that could uh, represent security needs to protect a business and all that's inside that business at a global scale from any sort of harm. And at the time, it is not the case so much today, but at the time, that included uh, a very significant cyber presence that we were building up around the world, uh, deploying teams into countries where we had most of our cha unique challenges, um, and recruiting and you know really sort of building those cultures unique to those environments, identifying threats to the business, whether they were nation state, um, insider technology gaps, uh, exposure of critical information, and then, of course, you know, the physical side of things. And that really just exploded in terms of growth for me after I moved in to this, uh, even the deputy role, which I had before this role. And we really began building a multi-layered organization around the world that includes, again, the traditional sides of security, but then extremely skilled technology teams intelligence teams, uh, immediate response teams, security operations centers or SOCs uh, that are deployed around the world, um, continuity teams that, that have since uh, moved over to formal business continuity organizations here in Verizon. And then um, on the more sort of edgy side, uh, fraud teams who deal with internal fraud committed against the company or fraud committed against the company by, by customers or people, I should say, who represent themselves as customers, not actual customers, and then external attempts at fraud, uh, and then all the investigative components that would go into responding to those, sites, those sorts of issues. And then, of course, we have uh, teams that work with federal, state, and local law enforcement on a host of different issues, as do I, as do you, and many others, of course. Uh, so it's a very very diverse group of individuals, including ex executive protection teams now, and then 
uh, travel teams who deal with sort of the post-COVID changes that have taken place over the last few years. And then we have regional expertise uh, in all of the countries around the world where we have major presence. So it is a extremely fast moving environment with, I believe, some of the top talent in the world. And I and I say that quite mindful of uh, the level of talent that is that is across the United States and the world. But the teams that we have built here, uh, they're simply best in class at everything they do. It's just an honor to serve uh, with them and, and to lead the organization. So it spans a lot of territory. You know, one it's I call it Yale the jail. One day it's sort of white collar stuff. Next day it's blue collar stuff. Next day it's international. And then it's, you know, traditional harm. Uh, and of course, the landscape, as you are very well aware, has changed uh, dramatically over the last couple of years due to COVID and some of the international strain and strife that uh, that we've all been witnessing. So hopefully that gives you a, a little bit of sense of things. Yeah, that's a huge operation. How many countries are you operating in, Dan? So that's the part that I'll be somewhat uh, uh, circumspect on. I will say it's uh, more than 20 and less than 100, so, <laughs> if that's okay. So, you know, Verizon is a global operation, of course, right? And like many, you know, we have many partners around the world and some of the places that you'd be familiar with. So, uh, yeah, so we, we have a lot of presence around the world. That's a big portfolio. Now, when you start looking at uh, your scope of operations, uh, mm-hmm. how do you get in front of some of these emerging security threats or what would be the best practices? We get a lot of security personnel that listens to these podcasts. So what would be your advice on getting in front of some of these emerging security threats? Yeah. Well, you and I have had conversations as have I have with the Ontic team and others about, you know, how do we, if we're looking at a threat board, how do we know what issues are uh, the trends? What are the issues that are uh, at uh, for ones that have sort of shown themselves to be scalable in terms of potential to cause harm to people, property, reputation, brand, technology? What are the ad hoc needs? And then how do we sort of build out this threat board, right? Because as we know, we can't chase every issue. We refer to it as chasing the rabbit. There are thousands, when we started this, right, we were um, much more able to sort of like say, these are the um, APTs or advanced or persistent threats we'll see. Here are the cyber threats we know of. Here are the countries that are acting up. Here's sort of the common track of an insider threat. Here's a physical threat, et cetera. That whole paradigm, of course, has shifted dramatically. Now you have political affiliations and ideologies that are built out of fringe groups that suggest they align with organizations when really they don't. They just use them as sort of like um, platforms to air their grievances. And some of those grievances, as you know, on the spectrum of violence can go very sideways, very, very fast and, um, you know, strain an already uh, strained global population. And we've seen extremism groups that have come up. Technology teams that have co- using technology, I should say, to, that uh, you know harass others. Uh, attempts at taking over accounts, at um, you know at scale. I mean, it's really a incredibly dynamic environment. So the way we do it, of course, is as always. The most important thing to, is to be aware that I cannot do this alone. And uh, hiring who I believe are the best in what they do as sort of the inner circle, and then making sure that we put, uh, just from the human side, we put aces in their places, right? We put the best people 
in roles that they are going to be the most successful at based on their skills, their aptitude, their experience and background. And then I empower them through resources and uh, headcount and technology and information and access to be able to execute against their mission, um, almost as, um, you know, uh, a set of deputies, I'll call them, that uh, have parts of the world or functions around the world that they can they can care for at any time. And then, of course, uh, at my level, I am looking at within those respective verticals, what are the most important things that I need to be made aware of and um, kept abreast of so that I can keep the senior leadership of Verizon aware of what they should know. They don't need to know everything, of course, uh, nor do I. But uh, the things that uh, I consider most um, prone to cause harm to the Verizon ecosystem or the people that comprise this ecosystem are the issues that, I, uh, that I'm going to be most uh, aware of on a regular basis. Now, I will tell you, I am guilty of, of dipping into the weeds probably more than I need to, not because, uh, uh, oh, quite frankly, because you know the way we've seen things trend over the last few years if um we know enough now to know if something is moving down that spectrum of violence right and however that's going to manifest or show itself or whatever that attack vector is going to be whether it's technology driven country driven per- person driven whatever you know we know enough to know now where i need to step in and ask hey what's happening on x and um you know you know staying abreast of the things that i i consider sort of most immediately in need of my concern. So look, it's very dynamic. You know it as well as I do that, um, you know, things can pop up. You know, one day we're dealing with an issue in North Asia and then South America and then Basking Ridge or Ohio, and they can span the categories of uh, security that we all are very familiar with. So, you know, I think the teams, the technology, um, and I'll give you a couple examples of this as we get into the conversation, if that's okay. And then, you know, how quickly we're able to respond, contain the problem before it becomes a threat to life and safety or, or, or the company itself. Um, you know, bringing all those things together with the teams who can work interchangeably and interactively with each other is, um, you know, I'd say that's how I do it and how the teams do it. And look, as good as we are, and I think we are very, very good, by the way, we are constantly in learning mode. So, um, anyway, hopefully that gives you a bit of a sense of, you know, how we're looking at things on a daily basis. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Ontech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the Ontech Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontech.co slash center. That's ontech.co slash center. Dan, when you look at the global threat landscape and you touched on so many problems in our industry today, what keeps you up at night? Uh, So that's probably the easiest answer I'll give all day. That is the issue of violence. 
And when, when I say violence, um, I sort of look at it as a spectrum. It's not just the event of violence. That is, of course, the most concerning issue to me, but is that spectrum of violence. And, you know, someday over a cup of coffee, we, we can sit down. I've chatted with you a little bit about this in the past, but, you know, looking at sort of this current state of play across the United States and globally, the level of tension is the highest I've ever seen it. And, you know, I know that we've had times in the past, you know, 9-11, times preceding that, times since then, where, you know, it has seemed like the stress is extremely high on the global ecosystem. But when we have this sort of multiple parallel disruptive events going on around the world, one of which, of course, is a multi-year pandemic, and then we sort of throw on top of that uh, regional violence, street violence, concerns around extremism groups. Um, gun violence. I mean, that in and of itself is just a massive concern in the United States. And then what we're seeing internationally with some of the extremism groups and um, the divisions, even politically between uh, countries uh, abroad, as well as here in the U.S., um, it is a very tense environment. I don't know who the author was uh, who recently released uh, some some thoughts on this to the New York Times. I think his last name was Roth. I, don't, I, I could be misquoting him. I don't recall. But he was talking about something along the lines of, you know, how we see this level of stress show itself in society. And o- over many, many decades, I assume he had done his research. And he sort of pointed to, you know, when we see these sort of um, loss of confidence in in traditional institutions, combined with other stresses, right? This is, this becomes Maslowian, Fred, right? This is the bottom of the level of the pyramid, right? When people feel under constant strain and stress uh, with no outlet and are denied health services, as was the case during COVID, understandably, of course, right? Mental health services. uh, You know, we see rise in opioid, opioid abuse, rise in drug abuse, rise in violence, rise in gun violence. And when that continues unchecked, you know, we start to establish new baselines. So behavior that would have not been tolerated even just a few years ago becomes the norm because we become so accustomed to it that, you know, we get closer to that nexus of um, an event rather than being able to identify it at the, I call it the 10 ring. You know, we're now seeing it show up at the three ring, right? When it's close to the bullseye, no, no pun intended, where the, tru- the trouble is right there. So then you're scrambling. And when, you, when that happens at scale, you can't scramble at every issue, right? You can't launch a fighter jet at every bird that flies across the sky. But, uh, you know, when we get that close to the core of, of um, you know, what we're trying to protect and the threat becomes that close because, you know, it, over time it has become more organic and the new norm is closer to people or closer to brand or closer to individuals, then you have to move much more quickly and it has the potential to become a violent event. And it doesn't always have to be a, phys- a shooting or a stabbing or something along those lines. Although I would say, as you know, if you look at the retail environments across the United States and internationally, the amount of th- of threats that retail environments are undergoing on a daily basis has never been higher. It is uncanny how many uh, threats you know we become aware of in retail environment. These are frontline folks, and you know people are walking in the door with um, you know 
a lot of having gone through a lot of hardship, a lot of difficulty, a lot of strain and stress. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't have, I don't mean just Verizon environments, any retail environment, right? You, you see that stress sort of showing itself uh, when those basic needs are, are perceived as being under threat or being denied or, you know, you're going to lose access to something. If that's the concern, you know, you start to see people really struggling and how they're they're coping with these issues. So it's violence. It has been that way for a couple of years when I took this job. Uh, that was what was most on my mind. And uh, I'll tell you some things as we get into uh, further in the conversation that we're doing around that that I think are okay to share, by the way, and I think are showing wonderful, wonderful success. Um, but, you know, it's a it's a marathon. It's not a wind sprint. But, um, you know, that's that's what they pay us for. Right. Yeah. On that note, and we've we've certainly spoken to a lot of uh, chief security officers in the retail space. And I'd, I'd like to know some of your tips or advice that you could pass on that uh, has been successful at Verizon. Sure. So retail environments, by their very nature, tend to be high attrition environments. Uh, and depending on the the type of retail, you may have sort of a younger demographic, uh, f- uh, folks who are just out of school, perhaps their first job, or um, it's more dynamic. So, you know, you have a different sort of clientele coming in. So it's a unique environment, right? And you have some, you know, folks in there who are much more technology savvy. So, you know, it tends to be a a younger demographic in most environments that we deal with. Not all, of course, but in most. And again, high attrition. So against sort of the threat concerns that we see uh, in the retail environment, there are a number of things that we do. We have specific programs that are um, geared towards higher attrition environments. And one of the things that we do is when we hire new folks coming into certain environments, such as retail, they're given the, um, it's really a requirement, quite frankly, that they have these sort of, I'll just call them eight minute, they're almost like TikTok modules of security, right? Escal- what does escalation look like? What is de-escalation? What are the best de-escalation practices? How do you sort of not become part of the problem in your demeanor or the way you talk to maybe an upset customer coming through the door. What are the visual cues that you should look for when someone is starting to move into a threat posture? How do you care for yourself? How do you regulate your breathing? What does this look like in play? How And these are dynamic matters, right? These can happen very quickly in the, in the span of a minute. So how do you attend to what you're seeing there in the right way? So you become responsive rather than reactive. And I will tell you that despite what we've seen around the world in retail environments, non-Verizon related, a lot of the learnings that we're delivering to the frontline teams have yielded remarkably effective results. Rarely do we see a Verizon employee sort of become part of the problem in the retail environment. Rather, they are doing a great job at working with sometimes very upset. By the way, most customers are just, they're wonderful. They come in wonderful. Their business is great. You know, we, of course, appreciate all customers. When they leave, it's a great experience. But you do have those issues where people come in and they get pretty upset, right? They have life issues going on. All the things that we have all seen over the last few years, we all know these things. But we've seen great, great success with the retail agents being able to work with upset customers with great 
great effectiveness. And rarely, if ever, do they sort of become embroiled in becoming part of the problem. So I would say that when you're bringing in new folks into a retail environment, it has to start at the beginning. You want to trip. Most of us, right, we know this. Your, your body and your mind, it's going to go to its last level of training. That's where we go, right? So whether it's a stop, drop, and roll or hide under the desk or whatever, if that's your last training, that's where you're going to go under, under duress. So training them on, look, here's, here's a normal customer interaction. Here's an upset customer. Here's when they get too close to you. Here's when they're raising their voice. Here's body language. How do you interpret those things? What are the effective ways uh, that we know you can respond? So that how do you regulate your breathing? Respond to them in a calm voice. Don't match them at the level of, of volume that they're at. How do you sort of take the air out of the balloon? And if you do that at the beginning, I have found in our experience that you have much more success at not only keeping issues calm and cool, but also ultimately uh, meeting the customer needs and ensuring your own well-being in that environment as well. So it's a skill. And I think as we bring folks in, we train them quick. We make sure that they understand, um, you know, how to employ these tools. We are always available to them. We place certain, um, you know, we might have guards in stores uh, where, you know, we feel like it's more appropriate Sometimes um, we'll feel, you know, we'll decide we don't want to do that because we, you know, some environments, we don't want to give the impression that we're just, you know, sort of, um, I call it beating the beehive, right? Where we don't want people to think they're going in and like they have to get through a guard. Now, of course, many, many stores, many retail environments already have guards, but we just tend to be sensitive to the climate, right? Sensitive to the environment. If we need, if we need a guard there, then we'll put a guard there. If we don't, then, um, and we feel like the environment is safe and calm and cool and historically has been, then, um, then we won't do that. So we're really trying to look at all the different uh, aspects that go into ensuring retail or any sort of frontline safety and then making a, as bespoke a uh, set of solutions as are necessary for the respective environments. As you look across the country, Dan, from that perspective, uh, are there more challenging or problematic areas than others? So, you know, one of the things we've looked at, Fred, has been the issue of gun violence. And I mentioned that earlier, and it's something that is, um, I spend a lot of time on, as does my team, and putting programs around ensuring that you know, we are as informed and as able and well-trained as we can at all levels uh, within Verizon to make sure that we don't inadvertently walk into a situation where there's the potential for violence. So... When we look at trends, numbers, demographics, buying patterns, uh, weapons, things of that nature over the last few years, you know, we we were pretty uh, good, pretty skilled at being able to say, you know, here's where we see more gun violence or any violence for that matter. And um, here's areas that have been, so it's traffic light protocol, protocol, right? Red, yellow, green areas that have been less problematic. Since COVID uh, took place, what we saw was a massive swing in not only the numbers of weapons being purchased. And by the way, let me be crystal clear, and this is very important for me to say. When I say these things, this in no way reflects uh, positions on Second Amendment rights or gun control or things of that nature. I'm simply and strictly talking about data that we observe and that informs our strategy for security, right? That's 
all we're talking about here. But when I look at the buying patterns and the gun or any sort of violence that's taken place uh, since COVID hit all of us, what I've seen is a massive swing in who buys weapons. Now, I think that's important because it's it's instructive to us as security professionals because that tells us something, right? Buying patterns tell us a story. It doesn't matter if you're buying phones, uh, cars. Uh, do you remember you remember the rush during uh, the onset of COVID? People were buying uh, supplies for their homes, toilet paper, things that they feared they wouldn't have. And, you know, those buying patterns tell you something. What we saw during COVID is that mostly new buyers of weapons were in the um, in the category of, of women buyers. Female purchasing of weapons went up, I think, the highest in the history of the United States during COVID. And, and these were not sort of traditional, I'll just call them, you know, red and blue state buying patterns. These were across the United States, California, New York, Alabama, Massachusetts, uh, Florida, and women were the largest buyers of first-time buyers of weapons. And when journalists would interview, whether in groups or individuals, there was a recurring theme that sounded something like, I don't feel safe. I'm seeing what's happening with law enforcement. I don't know where this is all going. Uh, law enforcement seems to be, um, you know, you know, we're talking about defunding and and sort of, you know, they're under the microscope now. In some ways, of course, you know, one could argue that it's always good to, you know, be policing our, our own, you know, compliance with our own requirements in any organization, including law enforcement. But at the same time, we're seeing defunding movements of law enforcement. And these individuals and groups would say, I feel afraid. So I'm buying, I bought guns. So these things tell us something, right? That there's an ebb and flow in society where despite what we may think is out there, we can see what people are doing with their money and with their time. And in this case, in the last couple of years, we've seen people increase in the purchasing of weapons, especially first-time buyers and mostly women. So when I look across the country, uh, what I'm looking for is, are we seeing these buying patterns change? Are we seeing increased violence or concern in any areas across the country? Um, is it contained in, in a spike or is it something that is sustained and now is going to become a trend in these certain areas? Chicago, a wonderful city, great people, great police, a great police force. They have, I think, one of the highest issues of gun violence in the country, and they are probably the most one of the most restrictive on gun control. So, you know, when I start to see, you know, patterns in cities, of course, from a chief security officer perspective, you know, that instructs and informs my strategy for how we need to ensure employee, um, facility, retail, uh, asset uh, uh, protection within, you know, those cities. Uh, but it also tells me that there's something going on societally that is keeping that stress very, very high, despite heavy efforts at at keeping gun access down. So, and, and that's of course repeated across the country in a number of different locations. So again, uh, you know, we see sort of the divisions that have been taking place politically over the last few years where, 
you know, groups are becoming more, there are groups that are starting to suggest they align with certain political parties. I don't think they do. I think that, again, they just use them as platforms, but, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of extremism and, um, you know, it feels divisive and like there are divisions that are that are forming up in certain areas across the country. So, yeah, I mean, we look at through a number of different lenses and um, and any of those lenses can bring back some information for us that helps sort of shape an organic strategy going forward. Yeah, I love I love the analytical and thoughtful approach to that, Dan. Uh, Dan, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? I would say that. Uh, you know, sometimes the problems can become so significant that uh, companies, individuals, leaders can go into a analysis paralysis, right? Issues look so daunting and so, so much uh, at scale that, you know, how do we do this? We need more people. We need more money, sort of the traditional sorts of things, all of which may be true, by the way. But I would say that I have found that using business practices in the pursuit of a security strategy has given me more success in my teams and then my teams with their leaders and their teams than I believe I would have had otherwise. Security is a business. And I know that security professionals don't always like to hear that, but it, it just it's a business. It's a different product, of course, but it's a business. We we exist to support the needs of others. We don't, we're not an entity unto ourselves, right? Security doesn't exist to just support security. It's, it's a, a mechanism just like compliance or IT or audit or uh, finance. We support the pursuit of a larger objective. So I have found that when I use business practices and I employ security professionals in high impact, high value roles that have not only security skills, but good business understanding, the results are much more predictable and uh, more financially and operationally efficient than if I don't do that. So, you know, I would say that just reiterating the right people, uh, the best people, uh, and they may not always, you know, they may not always sort of present as the best person for a role, but it's incumbent on us as leaders to really look at, you know, what skills are these, are these folks bringing to the table and how do we put them in an area where they will be most successful and enhance the needs of the business. And in doing so, we've been able to keep um, the security environment in Verizon in a sort of a prescriptive condition with uh, predictability around much of what happens. Now, there's always the wild cards, but for the most part around the world, despite all the different cultures that we are, we have our business in, we've been able to keep uh, the business healthy from a security perspective and um, not be taken by surprise too many times in the security area. Well, thank you so much for that, Dan. We really appreciate you being on the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. Well, thank you so much. And it's wonderful to be here. And uh, I appreciate you and your team and uh, the Ontic folks and all that they do. It's a great organization. And uh, as always, it's wonderful catching up with you. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. 
Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.